0: Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Uh, I saw last week uh, an article with the headline, Pope Francis' latest controversial appointments have finally revealed his true colors. I thought, I thought wow! You know, uh, uh, this This just in from our head-in-the-sand department. Uh, Pope Francis finally reveals his true colors. Seriously, b- uh, back when Francis was first elected, I had a show on the Radio Maria network called Shield of Faith, and after about three months of uh, Pope-splaining, as they call it, the new pontiffs, uh, many in various problematic, uh, outright embarrassing statements sometimes, I made the announcement that uh, since the Vatican is the largest pulpit in the world, and since the Pope has many able defenders and my show's only on once a week, uh, I was going to devote, I was not going to devote any more airtime to addressing the latest tempest in a teapot occasioned by a, uh, you know, papal phone call or airplane interview. And to be fair, Pope Francis has said many edifying things in the last 10 years, and uh, he has been misrepresented by the press and continues to be, just like John Paul II or. Benedict XVI before him. However, unlike his predecessors, uh, he has also said troubling things that are not ambiguous or problematic only if taken out of context. Rather, he has made a plethora of remarks that are seemingly indefensible from a, a Catholic standpoint, at least the way that I see it. And, and, and this is just my opinion, so feel free to take it cum grano salis, with a grain of salt. Uh, Although I think the facts speak for themselves. Anyway, the point of the article was not that it's impossible or that it was impossible to see the agenda being pushed uh, under this pontificate before the last round of uh, papal appointments. But that while Benedict XVI was still alive, Francis made at least some conservative appointments. But that we cannot expect that anymore. From now on, it says that we will not see any more cardinals like Gerhard Cardinal Mueller, the erstwhile prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, or or even his successor, Luis uh, Ladaria Ferrer. And speaking of the Doctrine of the Faith, the recent appointment that's ruffled the most feathers uh, is that of Cardinal-elect Victor Emmanuel Fernandez, who Francis designated prefect of the newly renamed Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, which we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Well, you know, go back far enough in time. You may remember uh, when, as head of the CDF, Cardinal Mueller was called upon to examine the works of then Bishop Fernandez when he was up for the job of rector for the Catholic University of Argentina. Cardinal Mueller concluded that he was culpable of nothing more or less than heresy for uh, supporting various incoherent theses uh, in his theology. But the appointment ultimately went through, as papal appointments are wont to do. Uh, However, when Fernanda's incoherencies found their way into Amoris Laetitia, it caused many to wonder if Pope Francis was really approving, at least in some cases, the divorced and remarried, to receive Holy Communion without benefit of annulment. So again, as head of the CDF, Cardinal Mueller uh, dutifully employed the hermeneutic of continuity to squeeze an Orthodox interpretation out of Chapter 8 of Lemurus Letitia, only to be removed as prefect by Pope Francis for his trouble. And uh, to add insult to injury, The contrary interpretation of the infamous chapter, that of the Argentine bishops, including you-know-who, was declared to be the only interpretation in a letter from Pope Francis. Subsequently, their interpretation and his endorsement of it were made an official part of Francis's authentic magisterium. And it's not to be wondered uh, that Pope Francis considers this the only interpretation as it is ostensibly the interpretation of the person who wrote it in the first place and on his behalf. Now, in a recent YouTube video, Ralph Martin of Renewal Ministries, you probably know Ralph Martin, also pointed out that the uh, CDF had recently determined that the church cannot bless same-sex unions because it cannot bless sin. But Cardinal Hollerick whom Pope Francis made the head of the upcoming Synod of Bishops on Synodality, uh, he dissented from that view. And this, by the way, is in keeping with the sentiments of Cardinal Marx, who was one of Pope Francis's longtime advisors and head of the German Bishops' uh, Conference, and Cardinal Grech, who was given charge of the whole synodal process by Francis, uh, and who was called the Church's Teaching, Homo- Church's Teaching on Homosexuality, quote, an open question, unquote, and further uh, said that the catechism's teaching on homosexuality should be changed. Uh, And and it might be further noted that on the 7th of this month, Cardinal-elect Fernandez also argued that blessing same-sex unions may be possible, even though the CDF had ruled, just recently ruled otherwise. Uh, He said they may be possible so long as such blessings do, quote, do not cause confusion, unquote, whatever whatever that might mean. Now, I recommend that you check out Ralph Martin's video on YouTube. It's called, It is Now Unmistakably Clear Where We Are Being Led. And in the video, uh, Martin goes into greater detail to show an emerging consensus among those close to the Pope, uh, which supports his conclusion that changing the Church's teaching on homosexuality is more than an open question but clearly the direction they intend to take the church. Connecting the dots, uh, Ralph Martin said, quote, the last dot is there, and it's not puzzling or ambiguous anymore. And uh, changing the teaching on homosexuality is unfortunately only one example of Cardinal-elect Fernandez's incoherencies. In particular, Ralph Martin notes that in 1995, Fernandez wrote an article which maintained that he is fully convinced that, quote, everybody is saved, unquote. And then there is the line in Evangelii Gaudium, for which he was the ghostwriter, that says, it is against the logic of the gospel that anyone should be lost forever. And of course, that, I mean, this is nonsense. The possibility of being saved from the eternal separation from God, which we deserve, is the gospel. And what the cardinal elect has apparently suggested in a papal document, no less, is the heresy of universal salvation. And the reason that all of this is significant is that Ralph Martin is not a a traditionalist or a gadfly. Uh, Rather, he is a dyed-in-the-wool Vatican II, Novus Ordo conservative Catholic who's been involved in lay evangelization for 40 years. and and his well-known Renewal Ministries has enjoyed continual ecclesial support. And further, the fact that his voice is only one among many who have impeccable bona fides for orthodoxy and have come to the same conclusion just makes the point that much stronger. Now, it may be argued that uh, the modern conservative opposition to Pope Francis's magisterium is really no different than when liberal theologians opposed John Paul II. It's just the other side of the coin. Uh, The liberals who accuse conservatives today of going against the Holy Spirit when they criticize Pope Francis are really no different than the Novus Ordo conservatives who used to say the same about the liberals who opposed John Paul II. Well, first, just allow me to say that I am sick to death of uh, people suggesting that the criticism of the pope, and that's any pope, is a sin against the Holy Ghost on the grounds that the Holy Spirit chooses the pope. Okay, this is nonsense. The College of Cardinals elects the pope, and and to be sure, that conclave invokes the Holy Spirit, and hopefully, you know, prayerfully reflects on their choice. And of course, they enjoy the same gifts of the Holy Spirit as as any of the baptized as well as the graces of ordination. But how well they exercise those gifts is another matter. Papal elections are not infallible, nor is there any promise that the Holy Ghost will uh, guarantee that they choose the best candidate. The reason is that the selection of the Pope is not a matter of doctrine, but of church governance, so it's prudential. Now, there is, however, a definite distinction between those who criticize the authentic magisterium of Pope Francis and those who dissent from the ordinary magisterium of John Paul II. See, no one doubts that chapter 8 of Amoris Laetitia or Francis' insistence on the inadmissibility of capital punishment are a part of his authentic magisterium. There's no ambiguity, ambiguity here. He made his uh, approval of the possibility of communion for the divorced and remarried crystal clear when he entered in, into the official acts of the Holy See. Likewise, his his absolute rejection of capital punishment when it was published in the official catechism. But the Pope's authentic magisterium does not enjoy the protection of the Holy Spirit. That is, it is not infallible and certainly open to criticism. On the other hand, when when liberal theologians, including priests and bishops and university professors, when they descended from John Paul II's Veritatis Splendor, or ordinatio sacerdotalis for example, they were and are rejecting John Paul's ordinary magisterium, which is infallible. Because in the church documents I just mentioned, Pope John Paul was merely reiterating what the church has always taught, that is, things that are part of the deposit of faith, and consequently infallible and unchangeable. Veritatis' splendor particularly was uh, the Pope's defense against various errors and attacks on the deposit of faith. And so, As popes have done from the beginning, he wrote Veritatis Splendor and Ordinatio Sacerdotalis to, quote, confirm the brethren in the faith as Jesus commanded St. Peter. And yet, as much of John Paul II's and Benedict XVI's ordinary magisterium were rejected by various bishops, including Tuco Fernandez and and Jorge Bergoglio, for that matter. So when conservatives back in the day uh, spoke about rejecting John Paul's teaching is going against the Holy Spirit, it's not because they thought the Holy Spirit elects the Pope, but because liberals were and are dissenting against the immutable deposit of the face. That's the difference, and that's no nonsense. All right, back with lots more right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, In the last segment, I used the terms liberal and conservative in reference to different theological currents in the church. And technically, these are not ecclesial terms, uh, but political ones. And I always hesitate to use them for that reason. Uh, Bishop Sheen once said, By stressing our politics, the American mind is gradually shifting the standard of good and bad from the moral realm to the political. Passion, deep loyalties, which were once linked up with one's view of God, morals, religion, now revolve around parties, points of view, and power groups. The result is that Americans get mad about gnats and swallow camels, which, of course, is an allusion to what our Lord said about religious hypocrites, uh, the religious hypocrites of his day. G.K. Chesterton once said, It is the job of liberals to keep making mistakes and the job of conservatives to see that they don't get corrected. And this is, this is a useful definition. In my uh, short 63 years on earth, I've seen it play out in real time. Uh, the liberals, who are committed to change, push things to the left, and the conservatives, who are committed to maintaining the status quo, just move to, to the left with them. And, and this is why, in regard to my Catholicism, I consider myself neither liberal nor conservative, but rather traditional. And, as I have long maintained, I believe it is entirely possible to be a traditional Catholic even if you do not exclusively assist at the traditional Latin Mass. Being a traditional Catholic, so-called, is about whether or not you can say the act of faith and mean it. Okay, so I'm on a group text uh, with several of my colleagues, including some familiar voices from VMPR, uh, among others, and every now and again one of us posts a a link to an article or makes an observation and others weigh in. Uh, you know, kind of like social media, only not so public. And uh, recently someone started a conversation. I'd like to share a, a little bit with you. I'm not going to quote uh, it all verbatim and I'm not going to name names because it is a private group and not everyone in the group is a public persona. And uh, to be fair, also because not every person is in my contacts. And so I don't always know for sure the identity Of uh, of all the certain, you know, contributors. But in any event, someone in the group texted a link to an article about the FBI targeting traditional Catholics. And then someone else responded that the reason they're targeting traditional Matlin Mass Catholics is that many of our, quote, Democrat voting Novus Ordo brethren, unquote, are already conformed to the world's belief system and therefore pose no threat to the current political powers that be. And he closed with the words, pray for Holy Mother Church. And Then someone else texted that while he prefers the traditional Mass, he also attends the Novus Ordo and considers that uh, an opportunity to set a good example for his Novus Ordo brethren by his reverent participation in the liturgy and as an opportunity to pray for their conversion. And this one mentioned that the Church has done a poor job of evangelizing and catechizing those Democrat-voting Novus Ordo Catholics, quote-unquote, and that those of us who know our faith have the responsibility to ask ourselves, what are we doing to reach out to them? And then someone else made the point that most Catholics, through I mean, really the, the vast majority, through no fault of their own, have essentially zero access to the traditional Latin Mass. And and we that hold fast to the traditions uh, should be missionaries among them, seeking to, quote, evangelize the lost, the least, and the last, unquote. And then the person who texted the original comment said, I do attend both forms of the Roman Rite, but it is still a fact that the traditional Latin Mass is under attack, and not just by the secular powers that be, but by many of those entrusted with faithfully passing on the tradition. So, in other words, priests and bishops and university professors, catechists at all. This, he said, is the cause of so much confusion in the church that in the United States, many practicing Catholics see no problem with, you know, voting for, you know, pro-choice Democrats, Biden, Pelosi, etc., uh, you know, for, to vote for what John Paul II called the culture of death. But the same is not true for Catholics who attend the traditional Latin Mass. He said, I never said don't love them, don't evangelize them, or don't attend the Novus Ordo. I simply said pray for Mother Church. And then he reiterated that if one attends the Novus Ordo and votes Democrat, that's not consistent with the clear teaching of the faith, period. And he also pointed out that, you know, restricting uh, access to the traditional Mass so that the majority of catholics do not have access is by design and we need to pray that that changes you know with the understanding that it is every believer's job to build up one another in the faith etc etc and then yet another person weighed in and texted the good becomes the enemy of the best when it keeps you from the best the inference being that the novus ordo which is good is yet the enemy of the best if it keeps you from attending the traditional Latin Mass. Now, being incurably pedantic, I felt the need to clarify that the axiom of the uh, the perfection, perfection fallacy, as it is called, is rather the opposite. To wit, the perfect, right, the better, the best, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And the point of the aphorism is that insisting on the best often prevents the implementation of the good or improvements to the good. So, for example, insisting exclusively on the traditional Latin Mass as the best and therefore the only solution, uh, as opposed to also promoting the reverent celebration of the Novus Ordo. And given that the traditional Mass is as rare as hen's teeth, it seems reasonable for traditional Catholics to work and pray for the reform of the Reform as Benedict XVI used to call it. You know, the the document uh, Redemptionis Sacramentum gave the Church the blueprint on how to properly celebrate the Novus Ordo Mise and Liturgium Authenticum on how to properly translate Latin texts into the vernacular. And the letter has resulted in the correct, uh, you know, that that latter one uh, resulted in the corrected translation of the English Missal and there are more corrected translations in the works, including the Liturgy of the Hours. And this will hopefully hopefully mitigate some of the bad influences of those who tried to change with, uh, with milf, willful mistranslations what they had failed to change in the official teaching of the Church. And it's important work because the truth of the old axiom, lex arandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi, the way you pray affects what you believe, which affects how you live. Uh, uh, in other words, if you pray like a Catholic and you believe like a Catholic, uh, you'll you'll behave like a Catholic. You'll live like one. Now, I've often thought about this. You know, I believe that traditional Catholicism, as distinct from traditionalism, is the future of the Church. Uh, if for no other reason that than. than uh, because liberal Catholics don't beget more liberal Catholics. Uh, On the contrary, they beget non-Catholics. And a quick comparison of the gray hair in the uh, typical Novus Ordo parish versus the many young families at the traditional mass or, or the more conservative Novus Ordo parish will amply demonstrate the point. But I don't pretend to know exactly what this future church will look like I do not imagine, though, that the Novus Ordo is going to simply disappear. Like I said, I'm 63 years old, but I only converted in the 90s. So I had no nostalgia for, for the traditional Latin Mass, you know, for the good old days, because I'd never encountered it, uh, you know, prior to the turn of the century. And, uh, and I'm, of course, I'm, I'm very happy that I did. I'm grateful. But if anything, it seems, you know, I, I feel nostalgic for a well-celebrated Novus Ordo Mass, Because that was my experience at the parish, uh, you know, when I first converted. And the loss of that well-celebrated Novus Ordo say, is what caused me to seek out the traditional Latin Mass in the first place. But the fact remains that that I know many conservative Novus Ordo Catholics with large families who are completely Orthodox, who lead profoundly Catholic lives, who, who raised kids that have become Catholic adults who are uh, likewise strong in their faith. And and they're an inspiration to me, even though they may have never attended a single traditional Latin Mass. See, I I guess the point I'm trying to make is this. It's the fact that God allowed the imposition of the Novus Ordo Mise, and that he will bring good from it, is beyond doubt. Now, you know, it may interest you to know that uh, regarding that text, uh, group text, not everyone who offered an opinion, um, or, or rather that everyone who did offer an opinion then allowed is how they attend the Novus Ordo on weekdays and because the traditional Mass isn't offered daily where they live. But on Sunday, the traditional Mass takes precedence, you know, and me included. And, uh, you know, It might interest you to know that Benedict XVI, who liberated the traditional Latin Mass, also worked diligently for what he called the Reform of the Reform. He said, If the liturgy appears, first of all, as the workshop of our activity, then what is essential is being forgotten, God. For the liturgy is not about us, but about God. Forgetting about God is the most imminent danger of our age. As against this, the liturgy should be setting up a sign of God's presence. Yet what is happening if the habit of forgetting about God makes itself at home in the liturgy itself, and if in the liturgy we are thinking only of ourselves? In any and every liturgical reform and in every liturgical celebration, the primacy of God should be kept in view first and foremost. And perhaps the one bishop that was most in sync with Benedict XVI is uh, uh, Cardinal Seurat, former head of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Sacraments. And Cardinal Seurat once quoted Benedict XVI to the effect that the renewal of the liturgy is the fundamental prerequisite for the renewal of the Church. And then he commented, I humbly beg bishops, priests, and the people of God to care more about the sacred liturgy, to put God at the center of it, to ask Jesus Christ once again to teach us to pray. We have desacralized the Eucharistic celebration. He said, the reform of the reform will happen. The future of the church is at stake. So obviously there's much work to be done. And it cannot be avoided on the basis that the traditional Mass is better. And so back to that first text. Yes, the fact that traditional Latin Mass Catholics have been singled out as an existential threat to the new world order, uh, um, but not their ordo Mass attending brethren, does prove a point. To quote Bishop Sheen again, it was Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate. It was not Pontius Pilate who suffered under Jesus Christ. The grave danger today is not religion in politics, but politics in religion. And that's no nonsense. Uh, You know, when we come back, uh, we're going to do the gospel for the upcoming Sunday in extraordinary form. And we're going to talk about um, some insights about St. Jude and his connection to uh, two of the most important relics in the early church. Saint Bernard of Clairvaux's devotion to the Holy Face and the mysterious Knights Templar—all that when we come back. Stay with us. Welcome back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, you know Saint Jude, uh, I'm sure, and I expect you can easily conjure up the. Holy card image, you know that he's the patron saint of desperate causes, or some would say lost causes. And and that alone makes him an ideal saint for the church today, um, because the church is most definitely in a desperate state. But according to Our Lady, it is precisely when all seems lost and paralyzed that we can expect the arrival of her hour, what she called at Fatima, the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. And St. Jude had a special connection. Uh, to Mary. Uh, Also known as Jude Thaddeus, he was the nephew of the Blessed Virgin and St. Joseph, and therefore a cousin to our Lord. He was an apostle, of course, and the brother of another apostle, James the Less. And Jude's father was also in Scripture. Uh, His father was Cleophas, or Clopas, who died a martyr for the faith. And his mother was Mary uh, also. And Mary of Cleophas, you'll remember is one of the three Marys that stood at the foot of the cross, Um, the others being Mary Magdalene and the Blessed Virgin. On Easter Sunday, uh, Mary of Cleophas was one of the holy women who came with Mary Magdalene to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, in his youth, Jude Thaddeus uh, must have known Jesus well, and he was among those who gave up everything to follow him. Now, some of the apostles were were looking for the Messiah to found an earthly kingdom. So even at the Last Supper, Jude asked Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will show yourself to us and not to the world? Of course, after the descent of the Holy Spirit, Jude and his fellow apostles finally understood what Jesus meant when he said that his kingdom uh, was to be in the world, but not of the world. And Judas is not merely mentioned in the New Testament scriptures, he's also one of the inspired biblical authors, having written the epistle that bears his name. Uh, He begins his letter with a salutation addressed to Christians throughout the ages. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who have been called, who are dear to God the Father and have been kept safe by Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be granted you in abundance. Jude preached the gospel in Arabia and Persia with the Apostle Simon, and Jude and Simon both suffered martyrdom around the year 100. Jude, uh, tradition tells us, was beaten to death with clubs and then beheaded with an axe. His relics are now honored in St Basilica or St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and many shrines and churches have been built to Saint George, uh, to St. Jude in his honor all around the world including the national shrine to saint jude in chicago now as already mentioned jude is venerated as the patron saint of hopeless causes and according to what i think is a rather fanciful account from the oxford dictionary of saints quote this practice is said to stem from the belief that few christians invoked him for mis- a few christians invoked him for misplaced fear of praying to Ju- christ's betrayer judas iscariot because of the similar names. The ignored Jude thus supposedly became quite eager to assist anyone who sought his help to the point of interceding in the most dire of circumstances. Yeah, I, I, I suspect there's another reason. Uh, and that's because, according to tradition, St. Jude cured King Agbar of Edessa of the dreaded disease of leprosy for which there was at the time no known cure and therefore was a hopeless cause in christian iconography jude is typically pictured with an image of our lord and the way he healed the king was by touching him with the image of jesus that he carried with him uh, a legend has it that the king appealed to jesus uh, by letter to come and heal him but our lord could not take you know time from his earthly ministry to visit Edessa and so he promised to send his image to the king which he did uh, via St. Jude after his ascension into heaven now this this miraculous cure is associated with an ancient relic which is called the Mandillion of Edessa and it's a, it's a image of the face of Jesus made on a piece of cloth and it's today it's displayed in a uh, magnificent silver Reliquary, and it has a cutout that reveals the image. Now, I've seen the Mandelian with my own eyes, and it is wonderful. Uh, the image on the cloth is very much the traditional one that we've come to expect: Jesus with the, the beard and the long hair. Uh, the Eastern Church considers the Mandelian to be the first icon. Uh, but I do not believe that the Mandelian of Edessa was the miraculous image that uh, healed King Agbar but rather a replica of the authentic image that Jude carried with him, which I believe was the Holy Shroud of Turin. Uh, Tradition tells us that Jude had a special power, that when he cast demonic spirits out of pagan idols, that the images fell to the ground and were broken into pieces. And that's because he carried with him the true image of the true God. So for many centuries, the shroud was folded and kept in a reliquary uh, with a circular opening that showed the facial image of the shroud. And I believe that the shroud eventually found its way into the hands of the Knights Templar in the Holy Land. And not least because one of the things they were accused of in their their mockery of a trial uh, before the French king was worshipping an image of a man's head. And this accusation, in my humble opinion, was a, dist- a distortion of the veneration that they gave to the facial image on the Holy Shroud. And this is how St. Jude is connected to St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Because it was St. Bernard who wrote the rule, uh, the rule of life for the Knights Templars. And I think not coincidentally, then became the first uh, in the Latin Church to promote devotion to the Holy Face. He composed that famous prayer, Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter still thy face to see and in thy presence rest. Which brings us full circle back to St. Jude, who's usually pictured with a circular image of Christ worn around his neck like a medallion, which I believe is an artistic representation of the Mandillion, which was the, the shroud image of the holy face of Jesus. So one of the more popular devotions uh, to the Holy Face today is the Holy Face Chaplet. It's a chaplet of reparation for sins. I have one here. Uh, It's, it's, you know, rather like a rosary. It's composed of uh, a crucifix, a medal of the Holy Face, and 39 beads, six of which are single beads and 33 uh, other beads that are grouped together in five sections of six beads each. And uh, and uh, three other beads, uh, which uh, um, represent the the uh, um, three years of his earthly ministry. So thirty three beads altogether, which would be uh, our Lord's earthly life. And, and each group of six beads um, are are represent you know prayers, and they're prayed with the intention of rendering homage to all the sufferings that our Lord endured to His holy face through his five senses, right? So through touch, hearing, sight, smell, and taste. And the final group of, of three beads recalls the three years of our Savior's public life. And the glory bead of the Father is kind of said throughout. It's said seven times uh, during the chaplet to honor the seven wounds of Christ on the cross and to honor the seven sorrows of Mary Immaculate. So on the cross, we pray, O oh God, come to my assistance. O oh Lord, make haste to help me which is from the uh, divine office, followed by the glory bee. And then on each of the large beads, we pray, My Jesus, mercy, followed by a glory bee. And then on the small beads, we pray, Arise, O Lord, and let thy enemies be scattered, and let all that hate thee flee from before thy holy face. And on the holy face medal, we pray, uh, God, our protector, look on us and cast thine eyes upon the face of thy Christ. Amen. Now, I believe that this chaplet in honor of the wounds of sense inflicted on our Lord's holy face, especially in uh, conjunction with invoking the intercession of St. Jude, can render a powerful offering of reparation for our clergy during this desperate crisis in the Church. Every Catholic priest and bishop is called to be Altar Christus, another Christ. And we are called to pray for them. And this devotion makes reparation both to those clergy who have offended Christ, their model, as well as reparation for the suffering of faithful clergy who have been persecuted on his behalf and ours. And that's no nonsense. All right, you know, we've got a couple of minutes left in this segment. I want to go talk about the gospel for the upcoming Sunday. In the extraordinary form, that's the ninth Sunday after Pentecost. So I'm going to read the gospel now, and then we'll uh, we'll go to the uh, exegesis afterwards commentary. So here's the gospel. At that time, when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, seeing the city, he wept over it, saying, If thou also hadst known, and that in this thy day the things that are to thy peace, but now they are hidden from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, and thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and straighten thee on every side, and beat thee flat to the ground and thy children who are in thee. And they shall not leave in thee a stone upon a stone, because thou hast not known the time of thy visitation. And entering into the temple he began to cast out them that sold therein, and them that bought, saying to them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer but you have made it a den of thieves and he was teaching daily in the temple thus far the words of the holy gospel now if there's any one thing that's remarkable in the sayings and actions of our lord in this world it's that he always disregards temporal advantages and sets his eyes on those which are eternal In the gospel, we see him approaching Jerusalem. He had a multitude pressing around him, crying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. And they spread their garments under his feet as he went along. But our Lord, disregarding those outward displays, fixed his eyes on the city, because he foresaw the obstinance and their refusal of salvation and its consequent destruction, and wept over it, saying those mournful words, If thou also hadst known... And that in this thy day, the things that are for thy peace, but now they are hidden from thy eye. More on this when we return. Lots more No Nonsense Catholic on BMPR. Stay with us. Welcome back. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and in the spiritual sense, Jerusalem is a figure of the individual soul. And in his weeping over the destruction of the city, we see the deep concern of our Lord for our salvation and his grief when anyone is so unhappy as to lose it. And now we know that God the Father doesn't have human emotions because emotions are physical and God is a pure spirit. But Christ is both true God and true man and feels with a human heart. Notice that our Lord breaks into tears as as he first catches sight of Jerusalem. Why? Because he loved it. It was the holy city of David. It is the figure of the the eternal city of God in heaven. But what is the glory and splendor of of the earthly Jerusalem, or for that matter, the, the entire material universe, compared with that of an immortal soul? The the physical world reflects the power of God who created it and shows his wisdom. But the human soul is the very image and likeness of God, endowed with intellect and will, capable of, of appreciating all the wonderful things of creation and able to choose the good. The soul is destined for immortality and created with powers and capacities that are wider than the universe. Namely, to to cooperate with the divine grace that leads to the happiness of seeing God as he is and participating in his glory forever. So it's no wonder that our Lord, with all this in mind, should should lament, Oh, if thou hadst known in this thy day the things that appertain to thy peace, but now they are hidden from thine eyes. Jerusalem is headed for destruction, its temple will soon be overthrown people put to the sword the the walls cast down with not one stone left upon another because it has not known the time of its visitation jesus christ was among them in the flesh preaching in the streets uh, healing the sick giving sight to the blind making the lame to walk multiplying miracle upon miracle uh, so that it was impossible for anyone you know who is honest and sincere to avoid the conclusion that he was a true prophet sent from God. And he announced a pure doctrine, the love of God, peace and goodwill among men. He promised peace of spirit here and eternal happiness hereafter to all those who would embrace it. It was the time of their visitation, but they turned a deaf ear and a blind eye, so as not to see and hardened their hearts, so as not to feel and drew upon themselves or drew down upon themselves their own destruction. And this is very much what's happening today. How many souls disregard the time of their visitation? Born into a Catholic family, baptized, instructed in the faith, having received First Holy Communion, even confirmation. Uh, and, And these souls throw away, to a great extent, all these great influences. You know, and then choose instead to regard the present world and its, its pleasures as the ultimate object of life. His commandments are put out of mind entirely, yet it is the time of their visitation. Every hour of every day is a precious opportunity of ensuring their salvation, and yet they allow year after year to slip by without making any progress. Just imagine having all those aforesaid advantages, yet doing nothing to, to secure so great a benefit. It'll all come out all right in the end, they say, or, or God's good, he won't allow me to be lost. I'm no worse than anybody else. I'm too busy for religion now, but, you know, w- when I'm old, then i not have time enough to attend to my prayers and prepare for death. The truth is that the time of our visitation is slipping by, and it will be gone before we know it. And the worst of it is, if you willfully blind yourself and persist in avoiding everything that could enlighten you, then Almighty God, you know, in his concern for souls, he will, he will send them, let's say, uh, a sickness, and for a little while they are softened. But the moment they recover, they're just as careless as ever. Um, a century ago, a Paulist bishop named George Deshaun wrote, this has been my experience, I've known repeated instances where the most fervent promises were made of reformation when death seemed to be at the door. But I've never seen these persons at the confessional when God heard them and gave them back their health. I've heard the word of the neighbors. He or she is just as bad, uh, just as blasphemous, quarrelsome, uh, dissipated as ever. No, he says, those who are hard hearted and careless habitually, who have deliberately made a a bargain with themselves not to obey God but to obey the voice of their own desires and their present enjoyment, who are determined to turn a deaf ear to all that God says to them, such persons run the greatest risk that at the time of their visitation will go by and they will fall into final and irrevocable ruin. The time of visitation is now. Who can promise you that tomorrow will be such a time? Death. Death is coming for souls every day, every hour, when he's least expected. The fact is, we must die. There's no help for it. Then shall happen to our soul what our Lord predicted of Jerusalem. For the days shall come upon thee, and thy enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee around, and straighten thee on every side, and beat thee flat to the ground, and thy children who are in thee, and shall not leave in thee a stone upon a stone, because thou hast not known the time of thy visitation." The natural horror of death is dreadful enough, even when we're well disposed. But how awful the approach of death when you're unprepared for it. Uh, The grace of Jesus Christ can and often has taken away that fear and made the approach of death gentle and agreeable. But, you know, what consolation has the man who's unprepared, whose heart is wrapped up in worldly things, who knows no happiness outside of them, but must soon leave them all. He must leave his possessions, his popularity, his pleasures. All his pride and boasting are gone, and he lies a trembling coward waiting for the word that will drive his unwilling soul out of his body to give an account to God, whom he has treated with such a long-lasting indifference, if not contempt. Listen, if you see yourself in any of this, do not wait for this experience to come upon you. You know, maybe you're prosperous and healthy now, uh, and that terrible day seems far off. But the time of your visitation is called a day. It is at best a short space, and and death will be upon you before you know it. Now God is kind and gentle. Now the means of grace are abundant. Um, And what does God ask for you? Nothing. That your own reason doesn't already tell you to be most fitting and beneficial for you. Recognize your condition, examine your conscience, repent of your sins, turn to God with your whole heart, and you will have known the time of your visitation and profited by it. For the God of truth has said and will not lie. When the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness and do doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall surely save his soul. Amen. And there's one more point to be made here. And that is, after our Lord prophesied the terrible destruction of Jerusalem, because thou hast not known the time of thy visitation, the next verses recount his cleansing of the temple. And John gives us the, the detailed account. But Luke simply says, And entering into the temple, he began to cast them out that sold therein, and them that bought, saying to them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. As true man, Jesus felt with a human heart. He experienced sadness when he wept over Jerusalem and over Lazarus. He felt anger when he upbraided the scribes and Pharisees for their religious hypocrisy. You brood of vipers, he said. You whitewashed sepulchers. But the only thing that ever made him angry enough to get physical was liturgical abuse. And that's no nonsense. All right, another one has come and gone. I want to take a moment. We talked about reparation uh, in the last segment, and we're actually organizing right now a day of reparation uh, for this coming September, and everyone is welcome at the Sacred Heart Chapel here in Covina. I don't know. We may set up a registration just so we know uh, how many people are coming, but it's not going to cost anything. It'll just be an opportunity. There's not going to be Holy Mass or, or, you know, any... I don't think, uh, you know, arranged uh, liturgy. We're just going to have a time of prayer. Uh, You know, Terry will probably say a few words, I may as well. But it's, you know, we're just going to lead prayers just as lay people, praying for the clergy, making reparation for, you know, uh, those who have fallen short of, you know, their role as altar Christus and those who have been persecuted for it. Are going, to, going to make reparation, and that is something that we are called to do, particularly as lay people. In actualum, actual Actu, uh, apostolicum actualis had taught him. me for a second to get the Latin there, which is the the decree on the laity, that it's our job to sanctify the secular order and 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 making reparation for this difficult time in the church. Also, this coming uh, October 14, we're going to have a conference. At the Sacred Heart Chapel. It's going to be called a day with Fulton Sheen. And uh, Terry Barber is going to be there. I will be there. Uh, Dr. Peter Howard, who's involved in the beatification of Fulton Sheen, uh, will be with us and be talking about that. And talking about Sheen's legacy, his ongoing beatification, and more. So, single admission is going to be $45 or $80 for a married couple. A day with Fulton Sheen, that's October the 14th, 2023. Here at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. Now, if you're interested in coming, so, you know there's some people that have already made their reservations, and so it's it's never too early. I think the um, on the website it still says save the date. You know we haven't put up the the schedule yet, but we already have people reserving their place, and and I recommend that if you'd like to come, if you if you love Fulton Sheen, if you want to, to hear some inspiring words from Fulton Sheen, find out about the uh, you know his ongoing beatification. Please join us. And uh, just go to the website right now, vmpr.org, and you can uh, register for the conference right now if you'd like to, or you can call the office uh, toll-free, 877-526-2151, and make your reservation today. Um, You know, um, once upon a time, somebody asked Fulton Sheen if the church was going to change her teachings on, you know, sexuality, and he said No because uh, we do not have the power to change the law of God. But suppose he said that uh, we did, suppose John Paul II was to say, who was Pope at the time, bring out your contraceptives, bring out your scalpels, unplug the baby from its womb, marry as you will, fornicate as you will. What then would be the difference between the church and the world? And that's just a... uh, just a sample of uh, what we're going to be talking about uh, this October 14th, a day with Fulton Sheen here at Sacred Heart Chapel. All right. Uh, As always, I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for your prayers. I want to thank you, especially for your financial support. And until next time, may God richly bless you and your parents.